so uh, for today's sermon, I will be mostly channeling Rabbi Rami Shapiro. Um, <clears throat> as soon as I receive my copy of Spirituality and Health magazine, I open it immediately to the question and answer column that Rabbi Rami writes, and some months that's all I get to in that magazine, but it's usually enough to make my spirituality more healthy. Um, and we carry that in our South Campus Library, by the way, Spirituality and Health. For instance, someone wrote to Rabbi Rami with this question, I work at home and prefer my dogs to most people. Is that weird? And Rabbi Rami has this wonderful response, I too work from home, he writes, and I too love my dog and prefer her company to most people I know. This isn't a bad thing. In fact, my entire spiritual life is devoted to being the person my dog thinks I am. Caring, loving, trustworthy, responsible, and ready to go for a walk or toss a ball at a moment's notice. Make this your spiritual practice, he says, and I suspect you will attract a few worthwhile human friends as well. So this actually sounds like a pretty difficult path, so I'm calling it a dogged spiritual discipline to follow. Um, actually, he ends up with this little, he always has this little kicker, and he says, however, don't pick up their poop. <laughs> that would be weird with your new friends. So, another time, someone calling themselves a transhumanist, you'll have to Google that one, uh, writes and says he's looking forward to the day that he can live forever as a disembodied mind. And he asks Rabbi Rami, is there anything wrong with this? Rabbi Rami advises him this, over the next few days, make time to take a long hot bath, hold a bouquet of roses to your nose and breathe in deeply, savor the taste of fine chocolate, look into the eyes of a beloved animal, laugh and cry. Then ask me that question again. I remember this one as I stood out on the deck at 9 o'clock last night and beheld those amazing bilious clouds, orange and bordered by this darkening blue sky. What an amazing event that I wouldn't want to just be a disembodied mind to engage. But Rabbi Rami really rose to the occasion when someone asks him to recommend a guru. A guru, says Rabbi Rami? Why, I'll tell you, any of the Hasbro egg-shaped weebles will do. Now, do you remember? Are those still a thing, weebles? Actually, I kind of wonder. Um, and, uh, and if you Google YouTube, you can find the commercial from 1971 about weebles. And he says this, their core teaching is, if you remember this, weebles wobble, but they don't fall down. He says, embrace this teaching. Be open to the wildness of life. Embrace the wobbles and cultivate a center of spiritual gravity that allows you to ride out life's storms rather than drowning in them. Beautiful. Cultivate a center of spiritual gravity. What a simple statement and a wonderful recognition of the vast ground in which our individual souls are held that can keep us buoyed at times when, when fear or uncertainty or pain or grief pervade our thoughts and our lives. That's what makes weebles not wobble, or at least not fall down, even when we are wobbling. And in our text today, Jesus basically says the same thing. Don't be afraid. Consider the sparrows. Not one of them falls to the earth without God's awareness. As for you, even the hairs on your head are counted, so don't be so timid. You're worth more than a flock of sparrows. 
That's actually a lot of the underlying meaning of these verses from Matthew that Deb just read a minute ago. And she's right, it is long because it's a conflation. It could have been a lot longer, trust me. It's a conflation of three weeks of lectionary texts that describe Matthew's, what's called the mission discourse in Matthew, Jesus' instructions upon sending his followers out into the world. And so maybe in 1970s, Jesus would have said it this way, don't be afraid, weebles wobble, but they don't fall down. Disciples wobble, but they don't fall down, or if they do, they get back up. And then, this. I'm counting on the probability that my sermon title, The Da Vinci Dilemma, will put you in mind of a certain novel of a few years ago by Dan Brown, made into a movie with Tom Hanks. So how many of you have read or seen The Da Vinci Code? I figured there'd be a pretty good number out there. That's very good. Okay, a quiz of a far more literary nature. Have any of you ever read Nikos Kazantzaki's 1955 novel, The Last Temptation of Christ? Do I, see? I figured I'd see some hands out here. I've got to see a few. Or seen that controversial 1988 Martin Scorsese movie based on The Last Temptation of Christ. That's another possibility. So The Da Vinci Code, like its far superior, although admittedly far less exciting predecessor, The Last Temptation, does what to some people, and I think did to many American Christians, actually. It creates a gross travesty, they think, that makes Jesus all too human. For me, though, that's what makes the underlying theme of both of those books so good, especially Kazantzaki's The Last Temptation of Christ, because that last temptation, if you didn't read that book, is for Jesus to literally allow that cup to pass from him, to skip that whole cross business and settle down and try to lead something like might resemble a normal life. He doesn't do it, by the way. Focusing on the humanity of Jesus, and we're actually not talking about the Christ here, which is not Jesus' last name. That's why I usually say Jesus the Christ, just to make that clear. I'm speaking of the very human Jesus. This focus on the human Jesus has been and is clearly my bias, my emphasis. Some people have said my heresy, although Deb reminded me a few weeks ago that one time when somebody accused me of being a heretic, Jim Long spoke up and said, well, David might be a heretic, but he's my heretic. <laughs> and I really love Jim for that. And, and that's by the Grand Marshal of the July 4th Upper Arlington Parade, so I figure that gives it a lot of cachet. But this realization actually came out of my seminary training 40 years ago when one of my professors just out and out said this, if Jesus was God, then he does absolutely nothing for me. He says nothing to me. What he meant is if, if this whole Jesus event is just God going through the motions and not a human being like you or me who somehow found and then followed a pathway to experience the divine, the kingdom of God within, and then become truly free to be a full expression of compassionate love in the world. If this isn't the Jesus I'm following, if that's God doing that, then it speaks to me not at all. In even far less entertaining way than a movie with Wonder Woman or Iron Man or Captain America or Thor. The theologian prophet Walter Wink said it this way, I want to worship the God Jesus worshipped, not worship Jesus as God, this, however, and this is why I think it's not so well accepted sometimes, this puts a load of responsibility on those who follow this Jesus, 
to let him become our teacher on a pathway of inner search and outer compassion. You know, it's often overlooked, for instance, that in the story of Jesus' feeding of the 5,000, that it isn't Jesus who actually feeds them. When the disciples come and say, hey, all these people are really hungry, he tells them, you feed them. And they do, with the presence that is in Jesus' spirit and is theirs as well. So speaking of superheroes, I grew up reading Superman comics, 1950s and 60s era, when he was a far less dark character and, of course, still preserving truth, justice, and the American way. I read everything about Superman. I read Superman comic books, Supergirl, Superdog, Crypto, and, of course, Superboy, which really helped my fantasy life as a young guy. And I always wondered, what if Superboy had tried out for the high school football team? I mean, who could stop him? A touchdown every play on offense. As a quarterback, he throws a Hail Mary pass. That's all the way down the field. And uh, he's, with the super speed, he can run down and catch the ball, too, every play. And on defense, he would literally destroy the offense on every play. And how boring that would be after about 10 minutes or even after five minutes. That's why in these superhero movies, superheroes have to have supervillains to make the stories hold any interest for us at all. So human beings don't need spiritual superheroes. Humans need human spiritual guides who, as my wrestling coach used to say about our opponents, these are guys who pull their pants on one leg at a time. So the dilemma of this Da Vinci Code dilemma is that if Jesus pulled on his tunic one arm at a time, that whole one pants at a time thing doesn't really work. Whenever you have any image of Jesus from the first century, whenever Jesus pulled that tunic on one arm at a time, that is, if he was human, like any other human being, then far more is demanded of his disciples, far more is demanded of me, far more is demanded of all of us. If Jesus followed a practice, a path of spiritual discipline and action to discover his connection with, the, with his Father, with the Holy One of Blessing, then I have to withdraw my projections onto Jesus as the super spiritual hero who's going to do it for me and get out there and get in here to do the two simple things he authorizes his followers to do at the beginning of this mission discourse, drive out unclean spirits, and heal every disease and every ailment. These are Jesus' simple marching orders to those who follow his way. Well, simple, just not easy. Drive out unclean spirits and heal every disease and every ailment. There's much to be said about what those terms might have meant in Matthew's day in the late first century and what they might mean today. But one thing is clear in this mission discourse, there's nothing in it by the teacher Jesus to his students about people having to believe six impossible things before breakfast. There's nothing about having to make people believe anything, nor anything about creating an organization to accomplish this. It's kind of a self-organizing principle. This is his organization. I give you authority to remove unclean spirits and to heal. So it's not about producing spectacular displays of supernatural power. Rather, it's meant to manifest compassion and to provide healing energy and actions for all of God's hurting people. As small an action as giving a cup of water to one of these little ones is a gift to be rewarded, says Jesus. Simple gifts. So Jesus, through Matthew here, is basically saying this. 
Look, I taught you my way. You've discovered the same inner nature as me, your true nature, your true connection with the divine, with the source of all life. So now, as John's gospel has Jesus say it, you'll do the works I do and even greater things than me. That's why in this text, Jesus tells them students are not above their teachers and it's appropriate for students to be like their teachers. In Jesus, says Shane Claiborne, we see an invitation to join our actions with a movement rather than ideas and doctrine. And Barbara Brown Taylor reminds us, we in the church are not consumers, but rather we are providers of God's love. The church is not a hideout. Instead, the Holy Spirit comes knocking at the door, disturbing our members-only meeting and reminding us to get out there that it's time to share. Presenting our new concept of the Burkhart Center to the governing board the other night, I uh, recalled how in my first little church in a rural part south of Chicago, there are rural areas south of Chicago, in the late 1970s, I was struggling. I was a struggling young pastor in my first full-time parish. And, uh, and I was really struggling. I was wobbling so much, I thought I would fall down and never get back up, in fact. And I knew I needed a spiritual life, and I needed it really fast. So, um, my seminary hadn't taught me one, by the way, although they made me realize that following the human Jesus was a way to go. My denomination hadn't given me a spiritual practice, and that wonderful, loving church in which I was raised did not provide me with a spiritual path, at least not one that I noticed through 16 years. The closest, in fact, I got to a disciplined spiritual practice was in high school wrestling, uh, most of which was really quite good, actually, aligning body and mind and even heart and soul in a way. Although I have to say the most memorable piece of advice on a practice came from our uh, ex-Navy assistant wrestling coach who recommended the spiritual practice each week of getting a picture of our opponent for the week, taping it to our mirror at home, and every time we walked past it to spit on it. <laughs> now, that actually seemed like a good warrior advice at the time, but after the practical one, I wondered, this was like 1967, 68, how in the world am I going to get a picture of some other Chicago high school kid to put up on my mirror? I mean, there weren't cell phones, there wasn't Facebook. It would make it so much easier now to do that, uh, but no way. So I was reading back in 1979 the Christian Century magazine one day. That's the mainline denominational news magazine weekly. Still comes out. In fact, not too long ago, I saw an advertisement for a new senior minister at First Community Church in the Christian Century magazine. In 1979, I'm reading through it, and I saw this little ad. It was an ad for a new wineskin center. That was the name. And they offered guided meditation tapes uh, that would help you develop a spiritual practice, a spiritual life. So I became a member. I ordered those tapes, and they really did provide me with a great beginning on the spiritual journey. When I got the tapes, they came from the new wineskin center with the Reverend Robert Keck, who was in charge of that, and it came from a church called First Community Church in Columbus, Ohio. And I thought to myself there in rural Chicago, um, that'd be a church I could go to someday. Uh, by the way, I still keep that first tape as a sacred relic for my own home altar. I have to find a machine that actually plays it, though. That's really the tough part. Um, and, but that whole 
process led me into a deep inner journey that continues to this day because there lies an infinite mystery that just keeps growing richer and deeper the more one dives into it, is what I've discovered. I could say that Bob Keck, he became a friend later, and may his memory be a blessing, actually saved my life. Matthew says, there's nothing veiled that won't be unveiled or hidden that won't be made known. And that devotion to explore the inner life of the soul has a parallel verse from the Gospel of Thomas that I put in your bulletin as well, where Jesus says, come to know what is before your eyes and what is hidden from you will become clear to you. For there is nothing hidden that will not become manifest. This inner journey is about becoming aware of the truth of your own soul and thereby seeing more clearly the whole reality with a capital R itself. On the societal level, this driving out the unclean spirits means to challenge the systemic structures that keep all of us and everyone in the world in bondage. That's Jesus challenging the empire. And on the personal level, to drive out the unclean spirits means to find ways to loosen and even dissolve the ego self-structures that keep us in bondage to what Thomas Burton calls our false self. In fact, that August Burkhart Center spiritual searcher, Glennon Doyle, characterizes the false self in her no-holds-barred memoir, Love Warrior, as her representative self, she calls it. She talks about living out her representative self in order to keep her true self, which, of course, she believed was horribly bad and ugly, to keep that true self hidden deeply away. When I started to speak for my truest self, she says, then I could actually be seen by other people. That's terrifying, though, she said, and a lot of people won't like you for it, but some will, and some will come to love you. And actually, if you look at the story of Jesus, that's what happened with him as well. So Glennon Doyle has a whole lot of people loving her these days for her honest, honesty and courage in revealing her truest self. Glennon Doyle says, some of us are so lonely because we're only showing our representative self to the world all the time. Even if that representative is well-liked, we can't feel it because it's not really us. The tapes from Bob Keck's new wineskin center here in the 1970s saved my life by entering me into the depths of self. And by her own inquiry, Glennon Doyle brought out the precious hidden self in the depths of her soul and she's come to accept its preciousness and its beauty. The wisdom teacher Jesus says in Thomas's gospel, if you bring forth what is within you, that which you have will save you. That's that inner, precious, divine, true self. By bringing forth, by expressing your true divine self as fully impossible as possible in the world, as difficult as that is, you come into wholeness which is what salvation means in its most meaningful sense. It is saving to live out as fully as you can the divine nature that is at the very center of your humanness, this precious core hidden by the structures of ego and by the very systemic structures of the powers and principalities. There's a teacher named David Nicol who calls this work Subtle activism, it's a really great name for it, by which he means the crucial role that practices like meditation, prayer, and ritual play in supporting change in the world. Personal practices supporting change in the world. And authentic spiritual practices have always been for the sake of the whole, 
The early monastics, in fact, shut themselves away from the world in order to pray for the world. And we are now called to be monastics in the world. A good way of describing this is the way Jungian psychologist Marie-Louise von Franz defines subtle activism. She says, whenever an individual works on his or her own unconscious, they invisibly affect first the group, and if they go even deeper, they affect the large national units, or sometimes even of all humanity. Not only do they change and transform themselves with this deep inner work, but they have an imperceptible impact on the unconscious psyche of many others. Someone asked Rabbi Rami, how do you awaken to God? He said, you awaken to God the same way you get to Carnegie Hall, practice. Here are my practices I do daily, he says, walking, loving kindness, meditation, studying sacred texts, mantra repetition, and self-inquiry. Self-inquiry. Know thyself, said Plato and the Greek philosophers, and so does the wisdom teacher Jesus, actually, when you come to know yourselves, you will be known, and you will realize that you are sons and daughters of the living God, is the way the saying goes in the Gospel of Thomas. And if you don't know your true self as a child of God, it actually goes on, you'll be in poverty, no matter how wealthy or successful you are, no matter how poor or struggling you are. And that struggling is actually a necessary part of the path. Glennon Doyle finally realized there is a part of pain which is holy because the reality is that it is hurting human beings like us who are sent out in care and concern for the hurting humanity of God. We are called to be, as Henri Nouwen said, wounded healers. Something powerful happens when we can connect our faith with the pain of the world, says Shane Claiborne. So I open with the wisdom of Rabbi Rami, and I close with it too, as someone asks him, how do I choose which religion to join? And I think in his answer we hear what is the religion of Jesus rather than the religion about Jesus that most of us have been taught. So first, says Rabbi Rami, don't choose a religion because your friends like it, or the music is cool, or the ritual is moving, or, some people are, or the people are friendly, or the building is impressive, or the clergy are charismatic. Although all that's true about First Community Church, so whatever, Rabbi Rami. But instead, he does have a serious criteria. He says, choose a religion because its teachings point beyond themselves toward the truth with a capital T that no religion can own, because it rises above tribe, caste, clan, race, ethnicity, and nationalism, because it embraces rational thought and scientific inquiry without sacrificing poetry, imagination, and contemplative practice, because it celebrates equality between and among men and women, because it demonizes no one, because it honors nature and respects all life, because its clergy, its clergy empower you rather than themselves. And I love this one, because it offers you practices that open your heart unclench your fists, and uncloud your mind. It's a beautiful summary of the worthwhile spiritual practices, of any worthwhile spiritual practice. They open your heart up. They relax the tensions in your body and psyche. They uncloud your mind. They open your mind to clarity. And he says, because its fundamental aim 
is to free you from isms and ideologies rather than to stuff you into one. And then he says, if you find such a religion, please let me know. (laughs) So Christianity could be such a religion if it would just follow the pathway of its human teacher, Jesus. As G.K. Chesterton famously said, the Christian faith has not been tried and found wanting, found lacking. It has been found difficult and left untried driving out unclean spirits from the soul and the body politic, healing every dis-ease. Yeah, simple instructions, just not easy. But the thing is, ultimately, it's not just the little ego self, the false self doing it anymore when you get to that point. Walter Wink asks the question this way, can it be that the God within us, hungering to become human, God hungering to become human, is what prompts our quest to be human? Ultimately, it's not up to us to drive out the unclean spirits within and without, nor to do the healing. It is the divine presence that moves us into the practice in the first place and really is the practice itself. The divine is practicing with the divine and for the divine. Carl Jung called this the transcendent function, that which pulls us toward individuation. Spiritual teacher Hamid Ali calls it the optimizing thrust of, our, of being, that being with a capital B. Some teachers call it the enlightenment drive. And one branch of Sufis believes that it's actually your guardian angel pulling you as humans into integration with your divine nature. But perhaps Joan Chittister, that wonderful nun, says it most simply when she says, God is the tug you feel toward wholeness. God is the tug you feel toward becoming whole. So go with that tug this Independence Day weekend and be led into a freedom that no nation has ever known to discover a lasting peace and security that no empire will ever be able to establish. May this be the freedom we seek for ourselves and for our brothers and sisters in this nation and throughout the world. Amen.